I can only talk half as fast with one of these, so. You'll be out by dinner. Um, John's out in the desert making the proclamation. He's like, I am preaching the message that, that uh, in repentance and baptism, there is forgiveness of sins. And this is my message that I'm teaching to you, but I am just sort of holding down the fort because there's one who's coming who is greater than, he's so much greater than I, I am not qualified to tie his shoe. That's how much greater he is. And so he's out there preaching, and Jesus shows up. And it starts off, we're in uh, Mark chapter 1, starting to verse 9, if you want to follow along in your Bible. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. All right, there is so much speculation as to why, if Jesus was so much greater than John, why would John, uh, Jesus come and submit himself to John to be baptized? And there are, are countless theological reasons for this. I think it might be much more simple than that. I, I don't think it needs to get real deep. You see, at this time, John was not the only one out there preaching. Uh, at this time, the Holy Land, Jerusalem and its environs, were uh, under the subjugation of the Romans. And going all the way back through their history, starting about eight years after they became a people, the Jews of Israel were constantly under subjugation of some other group. And every time they came under subjugation of another group, that's when they sort of rose up and they got this, you know what's wrong is that we've gotten away from God and we need to get back to God. And if we get back to God, then we can kick, uh, fill in the blank, out of our chosen but promised land. And so here they were, and at this time, I think there were a lot of guys out there in the desert who were preaching various messages. Uh, most of them were probably fairly revolutionary. Uh, we know, historically speaking, that in the time, in the years leading up to Jesus, Jesus wasn't even the first one to come along to be the Messiah. The Romans had dealt with several other individuals who had come along and developed small followings and led small uprisings and revolutions in the name of being the Messiah. And so Jesus is just one more. John's just one more out there teaching. But unlike everybody else, John is teaching, you know what? What you have to do is you have to repent. You have to, you have to take the way you think and your, your mindset that is in line with this world, and you need to turn that around and reject that. And in rejecting that, ask for forgiveness of being of this worldly mindset. And in doing that, you become one of God's people. You set yourself in alignment with God. You choose God over the world. Because God's kingdom is right here, right now. And I think Jesus came along and was baptized under this message because he's going, see, see, that right there, what that guy said? That's the thing. See, this is the first fundamental point of the kingdom of Jesus is that we have to repent. We have to ask forgiveness. And Jesus is going, you know what, whatever else you think it means to God, it starts with changing your mindset and repenting of the past and looking forward and aligning yourself with God in the future. And then once having done that, be baptized in that. And there's, there's nothing magical about baptism. And this is something we teach here. This is something we understand. There are many reasons to enter into the Lord's baptism. One of them is being a public proclamation 
of an internal transformation. See, when you go into that water, you're saying, I have been changed, and this is my way to let everybody know about it. And when I let everybody know about it, I'm asking you, my brothers and sisters in the faith, keep me accountable. I'm not hiding that I am one of you. And if I mess up and start acting like I used to, you jump on me. And at the same time, it's letting the world know, the world that you used to dwell in, I am not, I am not part of, of your world anymore. I have chosen to align myself with something new and something better. And I think Jesus, in accepting John's baptism, in insisting that John be baptized, Jesus was setting a fundamental cornerstone of his ministry, of his message, of his gospel. And so Jesus comes, and, you know, I'm not even sure. There's, you know, there's so much wiggle room you can read into this. I don't even know that Jesus knew that John was going to be the guy. Because this is, Jesus and John were cousins. Okay, so they, like, knew each other. They, like, grew up, they, like, came up together. And so for all we know, Jesus went and listened to, like, a dozen other guys. And then he's like, ah, Oh, another John. And so he goes out into the wilderness. He's like, wait a minute, little cousin. Actually, he would have been big cousin by like six months or something like that. But he's like, okay, all right, tell me what you got. And he hears John's message and he goes, you're the guy. This is, what are the odds? Uh, The odds are pretty good because odds don't enter into God's kingdom. He pretty much plans things out really solid. So it's not like anything just sort of happens in God's economy. So Jesus goes. He goes to John. They have a little bit back and forth. I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. And Jesus is going, no, it needs to be this way. You should baptize me, and I'm not going to baptize anybody. And blah, 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 blah. They get it back and forth. And finally, John's like, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Let's go into the river. And so... John takes Jesus out into the river, and he baptizes him. And the very next thing we're told is, And when he, being Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. This was a personal experience. This was not an occasion where Jesus came up out of the water and everybody who was present saw this amazing thing happen. This, in this moment, was an experience and a message for Jesus only. There would come a point, and I'm going to get there in half a second. I don't do anything in half a second. I'll get there in a minute. Where where God will make this same announcement in a similar way to the whole world. But in this moment, he's telling Jesus, you're the guy. And, and the interesting thing here is, is so, uh, some of the other Gospels, just the heavens were opened. Like when the cloudy sky, there's that one break in the clouds, and a gentle ray of sunshine comes down through, and it's so beautiful and peaceful. And this is the thing that makes me think that maybe this is Peter's story, because Peter's like, nah, man, nah, the heavens were torn open. Like God had to rend the fabric of existence to make make this one opportunity to pour down the Holy Spirit upon Jesus Christ. 
the heavens were torn open. And, and the word that's used here for the heavens being torn open is the same word Mark is going to use later on at the crucifixion of Jesus. When we're told that, that at the death of Jesus, the, the veil, the temple veil, separating the Ark of the Covenant from the common masses was torn. It was ripped. It was shredded top to bottom from God on down. And at the same time, in the very next thing, the heaven, uh, the spirit came down descending like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So the heavens are torn open and there is this statement made, this acknowledgement made that Jesus is the son of God. Because God himself is saying, you are my son. Not like other versions where, where this is my son. Because God is not addressing the masses. God in this moment is doing all of this and addressing one listener. Jesus Christ. And he tears open the heavens for Jesus. And he sends down the Holy Spirit on Jesus. And he delivers this message acknowledging you, Jesus, are the son of a holy father. Just like at the crucifixion, Jesus dies, the temple, is, the, the temple veil is torn open, and in that moment, a centurion on the hill at the foot of Jesus goes, surely this man was the son of God. At the beginning, so it was at the end. The, he, the separation between God and man was torn open, and an acknowledgement that this man, Jesus, was the son of God occurs. This is the story of Jesus' baptism. And the next thing that happens is Jesus finds himself out in the wilderness. Too often we treat these two stories as kind of completely separate events. But the Gospel of Mark is very specific in tying them together because the very next thing we're told is the Spirit, this, this lovely, gentle, calm, peaceful, dove-like Holy Spirit that descended from heaven with golden light, probably some sparkles, and it lit gently on Jesus' shoulder. This Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Not led him, not suggested. It compelled Jesus Christ out into the desert by himself for 40 days and 40 nights. The Spirit of God drove him to go spend 40 days and 40 nights by himself in harsh desert conditions, burning by day, freezing by night, with wild animals, snakes, spiders, scorpions, other things that want to kill him and eat him and lay eggs in his head, because that's what's in the desert. No food, no water, no help, and, oh, by the way, the devil is going to be there with you. 
This is the circumstance that the Holy Spirit of God wants the man he just identified as his beloved child to go and spend the next 40 days with. Remember, I just said nothing happens in God's kingdom by happenstance. If something happens in God's kingdom, it is because God, the ruler of his kingdom, orchestrated it to be that way. Why? Why would God want his beloved son to go out under such precarious soul-risking, life-endangering circumstances. Because he needed some me time. He needed to get away from it all. I mean, Jesus hadn't even really done I mean, we're still in, in the first chapter of Mark. Jesus hadn't really done anything yet. He hasn't even spoken yet. It's not like he needs a vacation. So Jesus gets out into the wilderness. He gets out into the desert. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. And this wasn't a situation where he was with wild animals and, you know, the little coyotes came along and, you know, put their little snouts into his neck and nuzzled him a little bit, and the birds came down and, you know, carried the ribbon for his Cinderella dress, and they were all singing, and it was wonderful and awesome. These were animals that wanted to eat him and lay eggs in his head. This wasn't shiny, happy Disney time, people. But this is where God, the Father, wanted Jesus to be. So there had to be a purpose in it. And here's what I think the purpose, here's what I think God's design was. And I think this is God's design to this day. And I think so many times we mess up a design God has established to be useful and beneficial. And we have just completely rejected it. You see, just like Jesus... Many of us have come to a place in our life where we we walk down an aisle, we say a prayer, maybe we fill out a card. At some point in time, we find ourselves in in a big bathtub of water. Sometimes it's warm, sometimes it's not. And in doing so, we align ourselves. We are making a public statement that I align myself with, I choose the kingdom of God. I reject the world. I reject the world's hold on me. I reject the world's ideology and the world's thinking and the world's mindset. And I choose to make a commitment to the kingdom of God. Amen. And when that happens, the heavens go into an uproar. There's a halftime show. There's cannons and confetti and t-shirt guns and it's awesome and cool. But when Jesus made a commitment to the kingdom of God, the very next thing he did was allow the Holy Spirit to lead him into a place where he could be taught to live his commitment to the kingdom of God. 
more often than not, and probably by a significant margin, the people who sit in our churches today, here, across this city, this country, we come to a place where we make a commitment to the kingdom of God and we stop right there. I am committed to God. I am committed dish to God. I am committed to letting God make sure I don't go to hell. Yes, that's the commitment I'm making. Often, when we talk about the salvation experience, we refer to Jesus as Lord and Savior. We don't want Jesus to be Lord and Savior. We want Jesus to be Savior. Because if we allow Jesus to be Lord, we are saying, I want Jesus to have complete run and control of my life. I want Jesus' way to be my way. I want Jesus' thoughts to be my thoughts. I want Jesus' behaviors and actions and attitudes to be mine. I want Jesus' mission and vision for my life to be what I want. And more often than that, that's not what we want. We want to be us and do what we want to do and have things our way, but at the end of it all, not go to hell. We make a commitment to the kingdom of God, and yet we never take one step towards learning to live that commitment. And that's why we can spend years dedicated to Jesus, going to church, and making the same fundamental mistakes over and over and over again. We can spend years in the same patterns of sin. We can spend years trapped in the same mindset that brought us to Jesus in the first place. You see, when Jesus was let out into the desert, some, some will say Jesus was let out in the desert to be tempted. Or Jesus was let out into the desert to be tested. Yes, that's what happened. See, Jesus was let out into this circumstance to be tempted and tested because they don't mean the same thing. Jesus was let out into the wilderness to be tempted, to be enticed to do the wrong thing. And in the other Gospels, we get sort of some specific instances of how the devil did that. You know, I, you can get some food. I, I mean, I know God wants you to be fasting, but you can have some food. Or, uh, you know, you could have, like, you could show everybody how awesome you are, like superhero style, and you could just jump off the temple and, you know, do the full-blown, like, three-point superhero stance landing. You could have control of all the earth. In his weakened condition, alone, hot by day, cold by night, starving, without water, at the weakest a human being can possibly be, the devil comes to him and tempts him and entices him to do the wrong thing. At the same time, God is testing him. God is providing the opportunity for Jesus to choose the right thing. So many times, we in current Christian culture 
we claim a dedication to the kingdom of God, and yet time and time again, we submit to temptation over testing. Time and time again, we willfully choose the wrong instead of submitting ourselves to the right because we don't know how to, because we have not made those changes, because we have not let God bring us to a place where we can learn to live the commitment. It doesn't just happen. You don't go under the water and come back up and all of a sudden all the stuff that tempted you before has gone away. All the stuff that defeated you before has gone away. All the stuff that you struggled with all your life suddenly goes away. You come up out of the water and ideally you come up in a place where you can then say, all right, God, teach me how to deal with everything I'm trying to get away from. And yet we never make that conscious choice. We're satisfied with, I won't go to hell when I die, and I'll just sort of muddle through till then. And this is a common pattern God has repeated throughout Scripture. Joseph, he speaks to Joseph, he calls Joseph, he says, Joseph, I got great, he gives Joseph some dreams that everybody else goes, your dreams are dumb. Joseph makes a commitment, and God said, that's awesome. I love your commitment. We got some work to do. And that work means your brothers are going to leave you for dead in a cistern, sell you into slavery, and you're going to have to spend some time in jail. (laughs) See, when God leads you into the desert, in the moment, it doesn't seem like a good thing. But then next thing you know, you're running the entire nation of Egypt. God calls to Moses and says, Moses, you are going to stand up and protect your people. Moses does it, does it the wrong way, and has to run away where? The desert. There's going to be a lot of this where? The desert is going to be the answer. Okay, so we're on the same page. And so Moses has to go out into the desert for 40 years to learn to live the commitment he has made. He comes back to Egypt. He says, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, 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 whatever, just go. And so in that moment, God calls Israel to be his holy chosen people. Israel says, yeah, man, let's do that. God leads Israel where? Desert, you got like eight more opportunities. We're going to get there. (laughs) Who are my eight more opportunities? Who's next? Israel. All right. They go back and forth. They say, we need a king. God gives them Saul. Saul, not so much. We need a new king. God gives them David. David, you're going to be the guy. David's like, cool. What do I do? God says, you need to go where? The desert. David has to spend a lot of time running around in the desert, learning to lead guys, learning to be forgiving, learning to be a leader, learning to be a servant before he can actually be the king. Jesus, my Holy Spirit, I I give forth to you. You are my beloved son. And Jesus is driven to the desert. Paul, Saul, 
Why are you persecuting me? Man, is that what I was doing? I didn't know. I know. That's okay. We can turn this around. How about, how about Paul? How about Saul? In, instead of being committed to your religion, you be committed to me and my kingdom. And Saul says, yeah, that's, that's what I want. Great. Let me teach you how to live that commitment. And admittedly, in this case, it's more of a metaphorical desert. Paul's led into the hinterlands, you know, on the, on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, on the outskirts of the, of the Jewish nation. And he spends a long time sort of dwelling in, in insignificance until he comes to the moment where the testing is finished and God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have learned to live the commitment I called you to. You have learned to live the commitment you made. And now, now let's do some stuff. And Paul bursts, and it seems like Paul bursts onto the scene. It's like, you know, rock acts who are overnight successes. The overnight success who has been working and toiling and dwelling in obscurity for like 15 years, they're an overnight success. There's no such thing as an overnight success. You want to be an overnight success in God's kingdom? You have to start learning to live the commitment. Because otherwise, you are essentially the same person you always were and have always been, and you're pending your hopes that when it's all said and done, things get better then. That is not the kingdom of God. That is not what the kingdom of God is at hand means. The kingdom of God is at hand. The message that John preached, the message that Jesus stamps his seal of approval on, being baptized at the hands of John the Baptist, the kingdom of God is near means it's here right now. The kingdom of God is as close as your next breath. And a great place to start is make a commitment to live in God's kingdom. But the next step is start learning how to live that commitment. Bring yourself to a place where you can go, God, teach me. What do I need to know? And, and the next part's going to sound a little repeaty, a little rerunnish, because, you know, it's what we come back to all the time. You need to know God's word. If you're going to live God's word, you need to know God's word. If you're going to be in relationship with God, you need to pray to God. You need to learn to listen when you pray to God. You need to learn what it means to live in God's kingdom so that when the hard times come, you're not trying to figure out what to do because you've already been there. You've already done it. You've already been trained. In, in, in a more basic, it's like, Making the commitment, accepting salvation, entering into God's kingdom is the same as going, I'm going to join the military. Great. I've made a commitment. I go to a swearing-in ceremony. I have the attitude. I have the, the determination 
I have the conviction to live this commitment I've made. Great, that's awesome, that's super cool. We're going to throw you into combat and never teach you how to work with 12 other guys and use the same materials and, oh, by the way, here's a gun. No, point the other end that way. That would be ridiculous, and then that's the same situation we live our Christian lives in when we never learn to live the commitment. If you were here this morning, at some point in time, there's a good chance you made the commitment, but have you ever changed? Are you fundamentally any different now than that moment when you said that prayer, when you walked an aisle, when you went in a pool full of water? Are you any different? Or are you making the same mistakes? Are you subject to the same sin? Are you victim to the same patterns that have repeated themselves throughout your life? If so, maybe it's time for you to be driven to the desert. Because that's where we truly meet God, is in the desert. If you bow your heads as we close in prayer, please. Father, thank you for this day and bringing us together. I pray that each one of us would have heard something personal and significant from you this morning, whether it was in the message, whether it was in the worship, whether it was in the quiet moment we had by ourselves, whether it was in the words of a friend. I pray that there's not one here who leaves today not having heard from you and that whatever it was we heard you say, whatever message it was you gave to us, I pray you would give us the courage and the strength and the confidence to go forth today, this week, and all the days of our life committed to your message. Help us to be committed to learning to live the commitment we made to you. Learning to live a life in the kingdom of God that is at hand. Now may the Lord bless you, may the Lord keep you, may he make his face to shine upon you. And may you live each and every day in the assurance that we find in the words that were spoken to Jesus that are just as surely spoken to us. This is my child whom I love and with whom I am pleased. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.